So my parents are both babies of many siblings. My mom grew up with five. My dad grew up Mm -hmm. with four. And like there's studies about marriages around birth order. Mm -hmm. And like the best birth order marriages, like the most stable, last longest, are babies and eldest. And then next is middle middle. And the most volatile, like Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh Uh-huh. Baby babies. Baby babies! My parents are both babies. My dad's a middle. My mom's a baby. My mom's safe bets. Those middles, they're really like fucking good at peacemaking. Do you know what's rad about babies is that we're obviously the most beloved, but we're also the best martyrs. You know, they really go hand in hand. (laughs) Just we learned so much is the thing. We saw our oldest sibling actually martyring. (laughs) Perhaps some of us had the pleasure of a middle sibling (laughs) saying they were martyred. (laughs) And we combine those two skills. It's true. To doing an impression of (laughs) an impression of martyrdom. Also, we're fucking charming. It's weird because you would think it's all in our heads. But like, no, it's like fake it till you make it. Yeah. I've never met a baby who hasn't been charming. It's actually kind of outstanding. I love other babies. I get it. There's not a weird complex. Mm-mm. You can immediately identify a middle child. A middle child. I say this with all the love in my heart, knowing some really sad middle children. Yeah. Who like are the middlest of middles in all the senses. Yeah. And I'm like, I see you. I see your struggle. Thank you. Also, thank Christ I'm not you. I know. I just... Oh, my God. Middles. They had it so hard. (laughs) I guess. Do you know what's hard? (laughs) What, Morgan? What's hard? Being born into a situation Mm -hmm. wherein you're the center of attention Mm -hmm. up until your sibling starts breaking curfew. And then you get to like grow up into yourself. And then all of the older siblings leave the house and all the attention is back on you. That's hard. Babies are adaptable. I think that's super true. Like the adapt from a stringent parent to parent who's like, I love you, but like, you'll be okay. Yeah. It can be hard to make. And I think especially the thing that you're saying about breaking curfew rings really true for me. The way that I learned that Santa wasn't real is because my older brother broke curfew and I told on him. And then as retaliation, he's like, you know what's not real? Fucking Santa Claus. I was like seven. I found out Santa wasn't real because my brother made relentless fun of a gift that Santa got him. And my mom finally broke down and said, I thought it was cool in the store. Oh, no. Oh, no. Older siblings, fucking it up for us, man. That's not true. Some of it's true. No, it's true. Some of it's true. Some of it's true. You you go to school and the teachers have assumptions about you. It's hard being a baby. Being a middle child. You're just constantly over. I don't know. Have a good time smoking dope and getting laid, middle children, because no one gives a shit. It's the no one giving a shit that's the (laughs) lasting trauma of being a middle. I think that's the key part there. Let's think of like middle children that we know. Mm -hmm. Thinking. Brandon's an only child. Can you think of anything? worse than an only child yes a middle child (laughs) (laughs) i i I would agree it's really hard to be a middle no one comes out clean on the other side 
Certainly not parents. One of the things that my good friend who has five children said to me was that she was deeply worried about her second born. She's a truly middle child because she's yeah. between super high energy, awesome extrovert, who's also very high achieving, and then twins, and then the no. only boy. Jesus. So she's a singleton girl in like the sea of a family. Oh and, my God. And my friend was like always really conscious of this and like yeah. this problem of having like this child that you want to give special attention to and like really curate her talents and like make her feel seen and heard and then I was talking to Sanj about this once where I'm like you know your your parents worry that like you get left behind sometimes and she's like I'm not worried about that like I need to be like fucking left alone sometimes <laughs> and like everybody's checking in on me I was like are you okay I'm like I'm fine why do you think I'm not fine <laughs> the twins have their own language and my sister can read Harry Potter at, like you know at, like 11 and I'm like nine and I can't but like it's fine <laughs> the middle child is like can I fucking live? <laughs> Can I be me? Um, and it was just so funny to hear like the two sides of that where Zanja's like, I'm fine. And have like this extreme worry on the side of the parents. It was really eye-opening and very sweet. Nixon oldest and Claire's a baby. Mm. Congratulations, you two. You'll be together forever. Ah, well done. John and I are also baby and oldest. John's the oldest. Two younger sisters. Brandon, he's technically the oldest. He has a youngest sister, but he was an only child until he was like 16 or oh, something wow, crazy like that, which I think just makes you an yeah, only child. It does. God, he acts like it. He doesn't share anything. <laughs> and he's also like highly offended by name calling, <laughs> which I think is the <laughs> ultimate... I got it. So many names growing up. If you have a problem with getting name called, you are probably an only child. That's true. You're not getting out of childhood if you have siblings, if you don't have like 11 billion names. Not even specific names, just like mean names you get called yeah. for all sorts of all things. All sorts of things. Like really shitty shit. I mean, I could tell some Also stories. shitty shit, an actual <laughs> name my brother called me. And then I grew up around people. I didn't have any, I had one friend who was an only child, but all my other friends had like tons of siblings. Mm-hmm. And I just constantly, I heard the C word a mm. lot as <laughs> like a 14 year old calling an eight year old a cunt. Oh <laughs> like, things are rough in Kansas. <laughs> things are rough in Western Kansas. <laughs> Wow. I was never called that. I was called Chupacabra. Oh, that's a good one. Which my sister, who was nine years older than me, told me meant beautiful princess in Spanish. And (laughs) I tell you what, listeners, I was really old when I found out what Chupacabra meant. I was in San Antonio, Texas. My mom and I were at an art fair. There was a skinned, monstrous goat mask with teeth and it said chupacabra underneath it you were like this is ironic (laughs) and I go to my mom and I was like mom this isn't a beautiful princess and my mom looked at it and she's like no it's not it means goat sucker (laughs) I was like what the fuck are you saying and then my sister started referring to me as chupa which is not better no no Chupa means the cum leavings. Oh my God. One of my friends, I told him the story of the whole Chupacabra beautiful princess. And then I was like, sometimes my sister still calls me Chupa. And he's like, don't let her do that. Don't just stop immediately. Don't do that. I was like, why? And he's like, I don't even want to tell you. It's really bad. I was like, well, now I have to know. Hilarious. I have to know. My brother never called me a cunt, I want to say. <laughs> just in case. I did hear my friend's sister refer to her as a cunt and then hit her across the face oh with a paddle God. brush. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't experience anything like that. You didn't live. Uh, Neither of us did. That's what happens when you're loved. <laughs> 
You ready to get this going? Uh, <clears throat> Hi, I'm Isabel. And I'm Morgan. And this is Woman. A podcast about romance novels. About beaches. About all-inclusivity. About being married for 10 years. About personal trainers. About kids. About birth order. <laughs> about in-laws. About, uh, being from Ohio? Sure. Okay. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. This week, we're doing a Ruthie Knox novella, Making It Last. We talked about Ruthie Knox's novel. About last night. About last night. Thankfully, this one does not involve any kind of currency exchange. <laughs> any kind of population although i will say the chicago land area is bigger than london yes it is for sure population wise yes or like as big don't at me i think it's bigger between all the burbs and stuff it's, Yo, so it's gotta be it's ginormous it's enormous we I could probably know. google it it's a but why would we do that why bother also america's better no <laughs> Not right now, maybe, but yeah, anyway. I, know. I, was, <laughs> I don't know. They did They did vote to exit. That's true. Like, your, like people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Exactly. So I recommended this one, mm-hmm. which means that you have to do the synopsis. Picture it. Jamaica. Contemporary times. Mm-hmm. All-inclusive resort. A family has flown here for the wedding ceremony of the wife's sister? Brother. Brother. To her new sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. The book opens with our heroine comforting her youngest son who is vomiting into a potted plant before getting in a van, an airport shuttle, to return home to Ohio. It's a bad scene, kids. Oh, She's not enjoying herself. No, she is not. She is not. Turns out this is the youngest of three. Her other two sons, also bastards. <laughs> Her husband exits the van, looks at her forlornly, takes the child from her and says, you stay here. Turns out our heroine has a well-to-do aunt who has decided to return to Ohio with her sister, our heroine's mother, and enjoy some time in Ohio catching up and has offered our heroine the use of her all-inclusive suite. And her husband thinks it's a really good idea that she stay there. By herself. By herself. And our heroine is like, cool, sounds good groom or hero gets on the plane and discovers from his mother-in-law that he was also supposed to stay in jamaica (laughs) which no duh but But he he has he says he couldn't because of his work obligations so he has a terrible plane right back our heroine we discover has been working out a lot she gets a shiny silver bikini she's hanging out at the pool she gets a haircut she gets herself completely waxed downstairs and we know how i feel about (laughs) that she's making a big fucking deal about it can't shut up about it (laughs) meanwhile back in ohio our hero arrives home after 10 p.m his mother-in-law sitting in the dark of the kitchen accuses him of having an affair he says i'm not having an affair i'm just working a lot and she's like you've got to go to jamaica and bring back your wife because she's not coming back she doesn't want to be with you and he 
has a moment of clarity and decides that he's going to go to Jamaica. He goes there. He sees his wife and her haircut and a sexy low-cut dress. Drinking absinthe. Drinking absinthe. You know, the classic Jamaican tipple. <laughs> and rejecting a man at the bar. And he comes over. And they start role-playing as if they are strangers. They eventually go back to her hotel room and drop the act, which has allowed them to excavate some truths. They have sex. They find out that their youngest is having a fever because he's the worst. Worst. <laughs> the kids are so bad. And he's like, of course we'll come home, which we'll get to my feelings on that decision later. He returns home and they have their happily ever after as a married couple. That's good. Thanks. It's a novella. It's not very long. Yeah. I read this whole series after I discovered Ruthie Knox for the first time with About Last Night, which I totally love. The series is called The Camelot Series. It's about the three siblings. Amber, our heroine being the oldest, is the novella that opens the series and she's also in the novella that closes. It It takes place in this imaginary place in Ohio called Camelot, which is weird and hilarious. It's a progressive small town because it has a college, whatever, whatever. I feel very, very precious about this novella in particular, but also this series in general. I encountered it for the first time in 2012. What was going on in 2012 with you? In 2012, I just discovered about last night. And Obama had just been reelected and I was unemployed and figuring myself out in terms of like, was I going to continue serving? Was I going to continue whatever? John and I were ramping up our seriousness. After I discovered this series, we pretty shortly got engaged. Like the entire series for me comes at a moment of change, but I've also revisited this novella in particular over the course of the last six years at multiple points because of how deeply affecting I find the interiority and POV shifts between our two main characters. The book is almost entirely interiority. Yeah. It's a lot of interiority. It's so many feelings. It's almost exclusively feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I think Ruthie Knox is really good at that. I think this book is also a really deep dive into what it is that, like, really keeps two people who deeply love each other and deeply care about each other from having a fully realized relationship. At least she names the thing, and it's fear. Mm -hmm. And, like, the fear of not measuring up, the fear of not being the thing that you thought I was, the fear of, like, not knowing who you are anymore after three monstrous kids and a job that you hate and mm-hmm. like all the other stuff I think Ruthie Knox is like the fucking queen of what it is to like still love someone and not be satisfied their lives are miserable they hate their jobs or their lack of jobs yes. I mean they love their kids but they're not particularly positive about their children their children are monsters or their families or the choices they've made it's like kind of a downer totally but this is also maybe the only book that we've read contemporary that takes in the recession takes into account the housing market but also like what it was to be post-2009 Americans in a place like Ohio. It was bleak. It was bleak for them. They're living. I don't know in- anything about Ohio. I mean, it wasn't like the Florida housing crisis, certainly, but it wasn't like that far off either. Like 2009 was a bleak time to be for a small everybody. business. Yeah, for everybody, but certainly to be a small business owner. And like everybody had to buckle down. Like they're living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And I think like this is the first, maybe even romance novel that we've read that like that's the situation for both characters. I don't think the recession is that central to the story. I think he could have had any kind of job that was hard 
required and required a lot of him. Mm-hmm. And this story would have rang just as true. I think it's just a downer. You know, I saw a lot of stuff in that book that was like a little too true mm-hmm. and a little not pleasurable to read. I wasn't expecting it in a romance novel, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels more like a editorial and like an O magazine. It's just uh, at the end of the book, she like realizes that he thinks she wants to divorce him. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I never even considered it, which is ludicrous. I'm like, of course you've considered it. Every miserable moment of your life. Come on. Are you telling me you haven't considered it? And I also feel like Ruthie Knox as a writer is like, I don't know the patterns I've noticed across two books. Like, wow, this is really about you. Like you're going through some shit. You also like to masturbate in front of people because that happens in this book and in About Last Night. Mm -hmm. And it's just, uh, it was pretty heavy stuff for the genre and for a novella. And it was like, for me, it was so much interiority so much interiority about people being sad and regretful and then at the end being like you know what I don't regret it and I never thought about divorcing you and it's like I don't buy that I mean but like that's the thing like there's so many moments in this book like when he says that their third child Jake was born with all of his anxieties and mm-hmm. like they'd done this ritual where they like breathe in and out together because Jake like hyperventilates and like Jake voices all of his fears and like says them out loud and it's like they're sharing this particular kind of bond like I read somewhere that your children visit upon you all of the things that you feel worst about that felt like something that Ruthie Knox was tapping into where it's like here's this third child that's voicing all of the like latent fears that our hero Tony can't voice or doesn't yet have the courage to like is mom coming home are you guys getting divorced yeah. I don't want to choose between you yeah. which are all of Tony's deepest fears then yeah. realized in the voice of his six-year-old I thought that was like really beautifully done and also like that scene that you alluded to in the synopsis with the mother-in-law fucking staking out the kitchen and preparing his lasagna for him yeah like a child but he'd also work 16 hours so like whatever and like waiting in the dark for him to come home and then she's like are you having an affair like that scene is like bonkers but also felt maybe not like something I would have experienced in real life but also something I would have seen in like the wonder years the thing that I thought was most fucked up about that scene was her warming up the lasagna for him showing him the lasagna and then putting the lasagna on a plate and microwaving the lasagna for him I don't know that just felt like the darkest part of femininity to me (laughs) that you would like accuse your son-in-law of having an affair and then prepare his lasagna for him that's a really good point that's a really good point it was yet another upsetting part of this book for me I want to know why do you feel precious about it because you don't have kids no what what feel why do you feel precious about this book I feel precious because of the oppressive internality right of both Amber and Tony and so like the you're, you're doing academic speech like, I feel precious because of the oppressive internality yes Try again. I feel precious because of the way in which they're not speaking to each other, but like we have access to both of their monologues. And both of their monologues feel so earnest and so sad and so true. His whole thing about like why he doesn't warm up the lasagna, right? He lets his mother-in-law do that for him. Yeah, he does. He thinks about like, whoa, this is so demeaning and he lets her do it. Right, but before that, like the thing that we get before that is that he had an anxious knot in his stomach thinking about all of the things he had yet to do and all 
the calls that he had yet to make. And his anxiety was such that he didn't want to eat and he just had to like shove something down so that he could have a caloric intake to yeah, make the next he day. he has to shove something down so why can't he cut it out of the casserole dish and pop it in the microwave himself? Because he's just eating it cold and she objects to that. Oh, okay. He's like, I could have warmed it up myself if I had wanted to do that, I would have. And she's like, fuck you, you don't know how to take care of yourself. And he's like, I don't want to take care of myself. I'm pretty sure it's perfectly safe to eat cold lasagna. It is perfectly safe to eat cold lasagna. I think she should have left him to eat the cold lasagna. She could have. She just chose not to. She's just uh, doing what women do whenever we feel uncomfortable, which is take care of the situation. Instead of Mm -hmm. letting people figure it out for themselves, we have to fix it for them. Sure. That's like a a real problem that I think women have been acculturated in many societies to interact, right? That's the thing. I think this book acknowledges that, but I don't think this book problematizes it. I think this book is like, that's normal and good. Like, it it, talks about how like the wife is like burning out and then at the end she gets her happily ever after because she never thought about divorcing the person who pressured her into having a third child and who is not able to support them. He's like, God, I feel so shitty because I haven't been able to support you. He's the one who insisted on her not working and they've had that agreement and he is the one who prevents her from going for a run in the morning and that's like one of the few things she says she wants and he has this moment of realization like oh I should have realized that and then the book absolves him of these things for realizing but not like following through and the book absolves him of not microwaving his own lasagna because he's been working so hard it's that problem of like I think men are allowed to be as distant and unproductive as possible as long as they're working hard at something like it doesn't matter his business is failing and he's still working like 80 hours a week I think you're right it acknowledges the problem but doesn't problematize it and I think one of the ways that's so interesting about that is like this is maybe one of the only romance novels that I've ever read where the hero a works as hard as he does but b is working as a kind of coping mechanism, right? Where he like, he describes this beautiful house that he's built for her as like a showcase of his love. And he's deeply afraid when he like pulls in at 10 o'clock at night that he won't be able to find her in it. Like he describes it as like a sinking ship. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to look for her inside of it because she keeps taking up less and less space. That image, that metaphor, that idea that you have this human being who's raised in toxic masculinity and like really doesn't have A, the language or B, the infrastructure to encounter the problem in a way that's productive but is like still deeply considering it and I think that's like one of the reasons I feel precious about Tony in particular and Amber to a lesser extent is because for the first time in a long time I've read a hero who's dealing with the fallout of toxic masculinity but doesn't know how to enact a kind of solution Mm -hmm. and so like his solution seeking feels really haphazard and like kind of ham-fisted at times yeah but like no less earnest and it's searching and like that depiction felt so real to me and so sad I believe it's real and it's sad but I don't want to absolve it of any of its sinisterness and any of its toxicity because we just see them going home and accepting their lot in life and she talks about the fact that she feels like she has no identity outside of wife and mother and I'm like that's actually true and he made you give up your personal trainer and because he was jealous and he said he couldn't afford it and he doesn't allow you to do these things because you have an agreement this idea of an agreement keeps coming up throughout the novel Mm -hmm. and I think like the book 
ultimately says, like, with where it ends, how it concludes, that him acknowledging the problem is enough. But I think part of the happily ever after is, like, they're going to sell the house. They're going to downsize. And, like, she is going to get that job that she wants. Unless I see it happen in the book, I don't know that it's happening. I I don't know. I feel like it is. Like, I feel like that's one of the things that about this book, like it's intrinsic heartbeat of hope. The way in which she's saying, I never thought about divorcing you. I only thought about like bearing up. I only thought about plotting on. And I thought about like accepting this like dismal future forever. That felt true in the same sense that I honestly and earnestly believe this happily ever after because I think they're gonna downsize. And but she, gonna... she says she has this idea of bearing up because that's all she's ever seen him do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, and that's a problem. That's in no way productive, bearing up is not productive and I feel like the book kind of heroizes and forgives him for so much because he's bearing up and that's not real once again this really masculine construct of like suffering Mm -hmm. as virtue Mm -hmm. this book is definitely doing that for women suffering isn't enough you know if she was just suffering and the kids weren't doing well if she was just suffering and she wasn't also cleaning the house and buying the groceries and cooking dinner then she would not be the heroine of this novel Mm -hmm. but he's suffering and still failing and we're supposed to be like good for him good for him for me I felt this idea of like the gender gap in the workplace totally like women if we say like oh we need extra time off then Mm. we lose our job to be mothers but Mm -hmm. if a man says I need extra time off to be a father everyone's like good for you right it's the daddy bonus versus the mother penalty yeah exactly and that's just written throughout this novel and I just Mm -hmm. can't get into it I mean I think it reads more tenderly if you've read the whole series but this is not a novella of like light and joy this is not a Christmas novella this is not a novella of like pithy whatever this is a novella that is like excavating a part of middle America and like the part of marriage that feels like a grind the part of marriage that feels like settling right and like whether or not that settlement that sediment Mm -hmm. is something that you want to continue. And I think like that kind of look inside a romance is so fascinating. Like 10 years later, we're past the initial infatuation, lust and falling in love. Mm -hmm. We're past an epilogue, which is usually a marriage or a baby. We're deep in it now. We've got three monster kids who are all assholes. Well, Ruthie and Knox in her afterward writes about the fact that she has been frustrated by the fact that romance novels end at the marriage. And Mm -hmm. why is that marriages are romances but at the same time she writes in this scene where the mother-in-law is speaking with Tony and she talks about the time that she left her husband Mm -hmm. and the reason she decides to come back she tells him I decided to come back while I was driving to my sister's house because she realizes the kids won't be as happy without him he won't be as happy she talks about all the ways that he's deficient in the ability to care for himself she's like the man can't even work a washing machine Which is degrading. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah, for everybody. And then she's like, and so I decided to stay. And it's like this idea of like a sacrifice. Like she decides I cannot be happy if my kids aren't happy, as happy as possible. If my husband doesn't have clean clothes, I can't be happy even if he ceases to be my husband. I guess if living in the modern age is guaranteed us anything, if the idea of like greater gender equality is guaranteed us anything, it should be the idea that like like the two people in a marriage can exist without one another. Mm -hmm. And 
this book is very invested in the idea that you can't that once you get into a marriage I think like that's the thing that's interesting to me about this book it's like this idea once you enter into a marriage it's like two individuals living individual lives yoked together creating an entirely new entity called the marriage yeah and like whether or not the marriage succeed or fails depends entirely on the individuals in it and this idea of like success or failure feels destructive even like sure like the fact that Amber's like willing to plot on forever in the Tizzle marriage I mean she would never think about quitting and ditto Tony like but also the idea that like a divorce is a quitting Mm -hmm. sometimes divorce isn't a quitting sometimes divorce is just a part of a journey sometimes divorce is a beginning sometimes I think in fact most of the time divorce isn't quitting no I agree and I think like she deals with this in another book in the series where like divorce isn't quitting it's like the thing that's best for everybody but with this in particular with Tony and Amber where it's like they do genuinely love each other and it's like the question of what it means that like love is enough like she looks at her sister who's like in the throes of new love and she's making out with her new boyfriend and she's like you'll lose that yeah and then she hates herself for being bitter Mm -hmm. even though like that's her true experience and like that moment felt like maybe too true to read and like that idea that like sometimes the thing that you do is just continue and like not that there's value in that not that there's like anything like that but like that that is an experience inside of a larger story called a love story and that sometimes you like hit this path and it's like hard it's awful sometimes and like the way in which Ruthie Knox describes not sleeping through the baby and all the ways in which they're just miscommunicating with one another but still have this abiding unactable upon love for one another in and of itself it feels like a love note to the institution that is both a problem and a problem and a problem and a problem and a problem you know and like one that we haven't solved yet because we haven't solved gender equality and like we maybe even haven't solved the idea that monogamy is in a natural state and like all of the other things like this feels like a love note to an institution that doesn't deserve a love note yeah but like that she desperately wants to have one you know Mm -hmm. and like I think in that way like that's one of the reasons why I feel precious about it it feels like relentlessly true marriage is hard but I think raising kids is what's really hard Mm -hmm. I think relationships are difficult yeah but I think there's something about this book that is like too true I think there's something about the idea of like writing something under the headline of romance that immediately creates the idea of a book of a I don't want to say a pedagogy but of a fantasy of a fantasy yeah like this is a fantasy and I just I wonder like so much of this book is too true and I wonder why or how we can hold up these things that are too true as a fantasy. I think the fantasy is like the idea where she like tells him that she masturbates when he's not there. And the sex scene is the fantasy. I mean, I think that's part of the fantasy, but like the idea that he goes, like it's the inaction of the action, right? That's but doesn't fantasy. that feel like so depressing that that's the fantasy that your husband would want to spend time with you and prevent you from divorcing him? Isn't that a bummer that that's the fantasy? No. Why is that not a bummer? It's not a bummer in the same way that... Or why is it a fantasy? Because, like, it doesn't feel like fantasy. It feels like the thing that you must do. 
or the thing that should happen. Like, and that's like where the fantasy sort of like meets the rubber of the road that is reality. Like there's a scene in the Wonder Years where the mom says something about their sex lives or like, I don't know, whatever it is. And he like makes fun of her and she feels really bad about it. And like by the end of the episode, he like puts on Ray Charles, I can't stop loving you. And then like asks her to dance. And like, that's the initiatory like move. And like, that's like recuperative. But then Wonder Years was never trying to be a fantasy about sure. stuff like that. I hear your criticism that this doesn't feel like fantasy. And I agree with it because it doesn't. It's not that it doesn't feel like fantasy. It's the fact that it is under the moniker of fantasy and it's such a low bar. But again, like it doesn't feel like fantasy and like that's not the bar that it's like attaching itself to. Like, But it's, it's under the moniker of romance and sure. romance is fantasy. So how is this? That's like an existential question about romance. I think sure. like, the fantasy element, depending on like which part of the subgenre you're in. Do you think Ruthie Knox wrote this book as not a romance? Do you think she sat down and was like, this is not the fantasy? Or do you think we're being sold a fantasy? You know, I don't know. And I think like the various times that I've read this, I've read this as like truth and then other various times I've read this as fantasy. And like the things that I feel most strongly about this is like the image of her when she's like, I told him that I masturbate as like a secret that she gave him as like, I'm tearing down the wall between us that I don't know how was erected. But it's like the wall of our mutual fears that we don't talk about. And then she tells him this thing about herself and she takes a sledgehammer to this invisible wall between them. Do you still feel like that's a fantasy? I feel like that is a discussion of interiority. I'm asking, do you think that's a fantasy? No, because like that's how couples should talk yeah, to each other. Yeah, that's how couples should talk to each other. If I mean, I just think Ruthie Knox could have written this book under a different name. What other under name a different, would it be? Like if I buy a Ruthie Knox novel, uh-huh. I expect romance novel and if you has a happily ever after yeah it has a happily ever after I mean like that's the one law of romance novels but it's like after all of this is it a happily ever after it's like the white bread how Stella got her groove back (laughs) and how Stella got her groove back is a real story yeah it is that didn't have a happily ever after I would argue this book doesn't really have a happily ever after it's just a continuation whatever you know like relationships ebb and flow that's how they work so it's not happily ever after she never even thought about divorce there wasn't a problem to solve she was always gonna suffer through that marriage they did the normal thing they did a normal thing and they kept normaling all the way to normalsville that's this book and it was sad and hard to read about it made me never want to have children it reiterated that kids are the worst she didn't even want to have a third child he pressured her into having a third child he bought baby girl dresses to convince her to bear his seed again and she never thought about divorce Nope. That's insane. Yeah. Well, everything was going good. It was 2007. The, happily, the, the housing market was up and up and up. Like, let's keep it going. No, 2007, the recession it did already. History clocks the 2008 recession in summer 2008. Regardless of whether or not there's a recession, you shouldn't pressure your <laughs> wife into having a third child by buying her baby dresses because you're not the one who has to actually take care of the children. Fair. He's a bastard. She's obviously hot over her personal trainer. She wants a life outside of her family. The thing that really breaks this book for me is the fact that she's like, I never thought of divorce. And everyone's like, oh my God, she's such a good wife. Like, no. 
No, she's a person who has had her identity utterly stripped from her by this person, which by the way, they rekindle their romance by pretending to be other people, by taking on other identities. And she's like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I have a haircut. I have a new dress. You know, she has to become not herself in order to become herself. That is some dark shit. And the fact that that's what she goes through to have a happily ever after excessive air quotes, I don't think it's a happily ever after. I think the depiction of Amber's... There aren't real stakes, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. If she never considered divorce, there aren't real stakes. And if she never considered divorce, that's a form of heroization, of suffering that I am not down to clown with. Sure, but I think like it doesn't feel heroic, her hoarding her secrets and it doesn't feel heroic the idea that she's like bearing up and that like the thing that's keeping them from communicating properly is neither of their abilities to voice their fears that doesn't feel heroic in the story no but it does feel heroic that she's like I never thought of divorce which is silly because she's in the worst state a person can be in because she decided to marry this person when he knocked her up I guess this is the question like what is a romance is it enough for to just have like a happily ever after however like contrived and broken and sad it doesn't feel contrived for them to say not only will we lose our house and it we'll does feel contrived for her to say I never even thought of having a divorce I don't know I think some people it almost feels like a dude's ex machina because he came all that way to prevent a divorce mm-hmm. all of this and then it turns out she was never even thinking about it mm-hmm. all this work was for nothing and then it's all just icing on the cake of their like stable marriage but I think Which shouldn't have been a stable marriage, but it was because she never thought about divorce. I mean, that's the line, though. Everything's fine, even though I feel like breaking. Yeah. Isn't that depressing? Do I think it's depressing? Yes, obviously. I think it's super depressing. But I also like recognize what feels true about it, too, where it's like depressing. But I recognize what feels true about it. Is that a romance novel? I mean, I read a lot of romance novels about women who do not have gender parity and that feels true and sad. Okay. So like rather than having a corset or a alcoholic abusive father, right? Which are like truths of a kind of oppression that mm-hmm. women are constantly forced to face. But the corsets and the bad dads, those are inevitabilities in our heroine's lives, things that they can't control. Mm-hmm. The heroine in this book does have control and chooses not to take it, never even thinks of taking it. The heroine chooses to accept her lot in life but it's like as a miserable married mother sure but she never stops loving Tony so like that's part of the thing too like I guess that's what I'm saying like should she love Tony I mean what's should in a situation of love you know what I mean where it's like should we love the people that we love should we continue to stay this is the kind of bullshit that keeps people in like abusive relationships these kind of questions like yeah there are bad relationships sure but like this one isn't bad on its face right Right? Like he is not abusing her. They both still love each That's other. That's the depressing part. That's the low bar. She is unhappy. They're both She unhappy. is unfulfilled. They're both unfulfilled. They're both unfulfilled. Should she love him if those are the facts? She feels controlled and pressured by him, as evidenced by her memories of getting pregnant with her third child. She feels unseen by him throughout most of the novel. I mean, they feel unseen by each other because of like the situations that they're in, right? Yeah, they they feel, yeah, yes, they're both miserable. 
They're both very unhappy. I think that's like what happens sometimes in marriages. She also talks about the fact that she was thinking about leaving him. She was pregnant with her first one. When she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Before she was pregnant. No, when she's pregnant with her first one. When she's in the bathroom. That's before she's pregnant, isn't it? Because it talks about two different scenes. One where she's crying at the dining room table looking at her pregnancy test. And another one where she wants to leave him but doesn't know how. And she's still living by herself. And he breaks into her apartment. Takes the bathroom door off the hinges. She goes back to the apartment that he said that she should maintain because he's afraid of their intimacy. Right. And she's pregnant and then she goes back to that place and she refers to it as the burrow and he flushes her out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a way in which this story is talking about the ways in which like not unlike a faded mate pair where like he knows her better than she knows herself which is a trope that I'm not super into unless we're in supernatural faded pair situations where he's like I know how to speak you out of your fear. I guess what I'm saying is the stakes in this novel Mm -hmm. are not real because we're told the idea is she's going to leave him and then we find out that she never even thought about leaving him. So the stakes in this novel are not real. And further I would say that the problems in this novel are not external forces it's two people Mm -hmm. the two people in the book whereas I think with other romance novels it's like people overcoming external problems Mm -hmm. I think the problem with this couple are themselves I think it's very true I think it's very relatable I think a lot of stuff happens in this book I don't know if I buy that it's romance and I also don't buy that it's like romantic Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been a really interesting, you know, literature with a capital L. But the fact that it's part of a series, the fact that it's published by the name Ruthie Knox. She thought they would go on in their marriage no matter what. Plod forward into their future, one foot in front of the other indefinitely. But she didn't want that. She didn't want to lose Tony by leaving him or driving him away until he left her. And she didn't want to stay with him and lose him either. She wanted him right here. Wanted to feel this close to him, arms around him, mouth on hers, sharing the same breath. She wanted to share this life. Yeah, but she also says explicitly she never thought of getting a divorce. Yeah, but like that's that moment, right? She thought they would plod on together. Yeah. And that would have been... Like a camel. Fine. Yeah, it would have been fine. And I think like that's a real thing. Is it not fine now? Do you think like her life is better than fine at the end of the book? Yeah. That's good. I don't. (laughs) I think like the material changes of what it means to like face your fear with someone else as witness. This book, sure, it feels like a really long therapy session. I get that. But I think like in so many ways that like romance is about the fantasy of communication. Like that's so much why we're in the POV of heroes, right? So we get the idea of their interiority yeah, is more complex than whatever they're presenting. Presenting, right? Because they grunt Which happens all in the this, time. In this book, it also happens. Sure. But it also happened in Awaken My Love and like every other book that we've ever read. And I think like in that way, this does meet the criterion <laughs> of romance fantasy. I guess I'm just depressed if this is that criterion like if we're like this guy's interiority is enough to make me feel like this is a love story that fucking sucks some love stories suck but not romance novel love stories uh we've had some doozies they're not meant to suck I feel like this book (laughs) acknowledges that it's meant to suck and I would also say it depresses Uh, me that the sex scenes are so fucking Freudian so I shouldn't ask you what your favorite sex scene is 
There's one sex scene technically in the book. During that sex scene, she opens up her arms to him so that he feels like he can go and get cuddled with her. She's sucking on her nipples and she thinks about breastfeeding her children. (laughs) Like there are good sex scenes, but they get broken up by this weird Freudian shit that also she's like at the end, she's like, I want to be a woman, not just a wife and a mother. But all she can think about when she's having sex with her husband is being a wife and a mother. Even when she masturbates, it's, it's like spiteful of the house for being empty. Yep. Fuck death. <sighs> <laughs> what was your weirdest part? She can't tell that he's turned on because every time he gets turned on, he glares meanly at her. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing's weird to me. <laughs> it's very true. I think it's better sex scenes than you're going to find in Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> That's I think it's That's some harder true. truths than you're going to find, but I don't think it's a romance. Hmm. I mean, romance for me, unequivocally, in the sense that, like, it speaks hard truths, maybe to the point that feel, like, deeply unsettling, uncomfortable, and unsatisfactory. It's like a cross between being boring and upsetting like therapy. to me. So it's a no-mance for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love it. I love Tony and Amber. I don't get your, like, passion for Ruthie Knox. I haven't been impressed by her so far. I want to try one more with you, and after that, it's going to be true. I think Ruthie Knox should, like, find her interest in some other genre. I think she does a great job of, like, keying into truths, but anytime she has to do anything genuinely romantic, it just ends up being, like, very fucking sad. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like at the end of It Happened One Night, she, like, falls in love with him because he does, like, a really fucked up art show of her most private, personal life events. Yeah, that was weird i love about last night love how fucked up her dudes are so traumatized they're not like fucked up and traumatized they're just regular assholes that's the thing that's like also super upsetting at least other romance novel heroes who are fucked up are like i watched my mother be raped by a pirate in front of me for eight hours like you know or something like that all the all that's going on with ruthie knox's heroes is that they like were raised in an environment of toxic masculinity and they continue to perpetuate that environment with their actions whether intentional or unintentional and our heroine just has to deal with it because she'll die alone if she doesn't (laughs) no (laughs) we're gonna do one more eventually (laughs) all right thanks for listening let us know how you feel about ruthie knox novellas and marriages and whether or not confront your life if this is your life holy shit just take a take a look at yourself just like ask some questions oh my god or don't because ruthie knox is right and you're going to die alone if you question it but also maybe dying alone wouldn't be that bad If you're adaptable enough to be in this shitty marriage, you're probably adaptable enough to be alone. Just just ask yourself some questions. That's all I'm saying. Oh my god. Loosen your stay. Whatever your principles. (laughs) Mwah. Mwah. Hey folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct... 
why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.